I treasure the dynamic tensions in life. For example, privacy and community, pathological optimism and catastrophizing, early adopter and skeptic. While not a researcher, I'm personally and professionally neck deep in research. Yet despite my commitment to research, I'm a skeptic. Who's it for? How can it aid decision making? Who's included in the research question, process, analysis, and dissemination? Where are the vested interests? Do we already have evidence, yet have little will to implement? Or does the bureaucracy or culture impede action? I will step in and highlight some dynamic tensions as the conversation flows. What about research funding sources? What's their perspective? What are the dynamic tensions? I asked my cronies at PCORI, Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, to introduce me to a staff scientist specializing in comparative effectiveness research funding for emerging adults with mental illness. Dr. Amanda Chu kindly agreed to speak with us. Dr. Chu received a BS in human development from Cornell University and a PhD in clinical psychology from American University. She is a program officer for clinical effectiveness and decision science program at PCORI. In this role, she manages a portfolio of comparative effectiveness research, CER, focused on meaningful outcomes for patients. Her portfolio includes several studies on clinical strategies for managing and reducing long-term opioid use for chronic pain and suicide prevention. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Loon, a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. You will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Like what you're reading, hearing, or watching? Go to my webpage, health-hats.com slash support to choose a method of support that suits you. Thank you. Amanda, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much, Danny, for having me. It's really an honor to be invited to Health Hats. Thank you. So when did you first realize health was fragile? Oh, gosh. So in third grade, my best friend's mother was actually diagnosed with breast cancer. And her mother was young, like in her early to mid 30s. And at that point in my life, I'd had some grandparents who had passed from cancer. Um, But it was not until that point when my friend's mom was diagnosed that it occurred to me that younger adults or even our parents could pass away from a terminal illness. And I think I assumed at that point, our, our parents would all get to reach older age. 
And so we watched my friend's mom go through treatment and very luckily she was able to beat cancer. But however, but I think it was really an early lesson that health is fragile and that good health in younger age is not a guarantee. How did you get into doing or yeah, being into young adult mental health research? Like how did that, how did your career take that turn? I'm a, a clinical psychologist, but I'm also a program officer at the patientcenter.com research institute, PCORI. And so it was very fortuitous that my research interests in mental health broadly really aligned with a lot of the values at PCORI in terms of really identifying the key areas where there are evidence gaps, where we can make a big difference in public health. And I think we can all agree that there's currently a, a mental health crisis among youths. And so PCORI has really taken charge in identifying areas that they can make a difference by supporting research to address this, this concern that's been, I think, growing in recent years and then accelerated during the pandemic. So how does PCORI identify those gaps? The evidence gaps? They do a lot of different, I would do this through different ways in terms of looking through evidence synthesis by looking at lots of systematic reviews, seeing where the field has identified large gaps. And we also do a lot of stakeholder engagement. So what that means is we try to figure out who are the key players in any given healthcare topic. So in terms of mental health, we certainly want to talk to the various clinicians in terms of psychiatrists, psychologists, other mental health providers, different patient advocacy groups, for example, NAMI, and patients. National we, Institute of Mental Illness, right? Yes, yes. Yes. Okay. We make a lot of effort to reach out to the patients themselves and their caregivers. If it's we're talking about youths, those yeah. for whom you know are actually making those decisions about their health care. We want that information to be relevant to them and to help inform those decisions that they ultimately make. So what gaps have been identified? Sure. So within mental health, we've had a, or youth mental health, we've had a few different initiatives recently. So PCORI, sometimes we will fund these, we call targeted funding announcements. So these are topics that have been identified uh, at PCORI through these different mechanisms I just mentioned, including lots and lots of stakeholder engagement. And so some of the targeted areas within youth mental health that we've recently funded are in pediatric anxiety, as well as adolescent suicide prevention and brief interventions for adolescent alcohol use. So okay. I think, um, we've definitely seen an increase in anxiety disorders we're starting to see the research come out up until about 2020. And sometimes research findings lag in terms of real time. And even up to 2020, we're seeing that adolescent anxiety has increased and depression, maybe about 25%. And I can only imagine that those numbers when we do post-pandemic evaluations will be even higher. And that pediatric anxiety funding announcement that actually was pre-pandemic. So that was something that had mm-hmm. been identified, but certainly will be even more 
relevant today. And of course, in terms of mental health, there's the intersection between mental health and substance use. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, everyone is concerned about suicidality among Mm -hmm. local populations, including adolescents. And one of the things that I see being involved with PCORI for 13 years and doing reviews and being on the board and being on advisory panels is that doing a comparative effectiveness research, which means to me that A is more likely than B to be effective with this particular population in these particular settings. And that there are areas, especially when you get outside of the practice of medicine, where it's hard to find comparators that have had research behind them, so evidence behind them. What I'm thinking about is, okay, let's take parents as a stakeholder. I'm a family member who has had family with severe depression. And one of the questions that we had all along was us being involved in the plan. That it seemed like the illness and the treatment were happening away from us and not with us. And so we didn't know what to do in real life. And when I think about Okay, so there's a question. There must be a question and a research question in there, but I'm not sure there's research to compare. You understand what I'm asking? How do you deal with that when there's maybe the methodology isn't sophisticated enough or it's hard to find research that of comparators? I'm trying to think because it it is certainly challenging. I'll remind you that for our research, we try to compare two efficacious treatments against each other and or treatments that are in widespread use. Okay. Um, Oh, okay. I forget that. So usual care it's called, right? Yeah. So I guess sometimes it may be some kind of treatment that is already being used out there and maybe those involve parents or other caregivers. Okay. Um, And perhaps it hasn't had as much research attention and this is maybe the venue or this is the time that's happening, right? Mm -hmm. So what's already happening out there in the healthcare system, how does that compare to maybe this other Mm -hmm. more manualized treatment that has demonstrated some efficacy, right? And then is it therefore worth it for the healthcare system to adopt or to keep treatment as usual, or should there be a shift to adopt this other intervention perhaps that has gone through more stages of testing for efficacy? What is efficacy and how does it differ from effectiveness and efficiency? Efficacy and effectiveness are similar. Doing the right thing yields results while efficiency is doing something with the least waste of time and effort. See more in the show notes. So 
that's one one consideration. But in terms of involving parents, I think we actually, when we do try to fund research where the treatments are realistic, right? So things okay. that are both useful to families and in part those are identified by engaging with the parents and and youths, right? So the actual patients and caregivers to see what are the kinds of interventions they would be interested in considering. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we think about the CER question as what presents a decisional dilemma, right? So if you have to choose between A or B, what evidence would you need to make that decision? And so do you try to promote research around treatments that patients and caregivers and parents would want to use yeah. or have access to. Perhaps we have dynamic tension between privacy and parental engagement. Consider birth control, sexual identity, STDs, and mental illness. An article in Human Communication Research talks about parent-child boundary conflict. The paper describes four boundary conflict patterns. Combative, guarded, surrendered, and trusting. Article in the show notes. It's worth the read. our sponsor, Abridge. Record your healthcare conversations with doctors and other clinicians with Abridge. Push the big pink button and record. Read the transcripts or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com, A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com, or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Let me know how it went. I need help. I've expanded my podcast this year to include video, and costs have surged to 15 grand annually, while each episode takes 30 to 40 hours to produce. With growing content and shrinking bandwidth, I need support to keep creating without impacting our retirement funds. As I look towards the next five to 10 years, I'm building a production team of emerging adults to carry this project forward. This succession planning requires resources. But here's the deal. You can help. Visit health-hats.com slash support for ways to contribute. Best option? Patreon offers a monthly subscription with bonus content, Zoom meetings with me and fellow contributors, personal Barry Sachs MP3s, coaching sessions, and more. Occasional donations are welcome, and you can still subscribe for free to enjoy bonus episodes. You can also recommend us through email, social media, or postcards. Postage on us. Visit health-hats.com slash support. Your support is deeply appreciated. Thank you. So dissemination at this point in the application review process, but 
that's something reviewers also look at. What's the dissemination plan? Is it really just to those standard scientific journals and conferences that it's really only going to be circulated to the normal people, the other researchers? And that's where our stakeholder advisory panels really come in, right? We're hoping that researchers can leverage their relationships with those stakeholders to help them think more broadly and creatively about how to reach the people we hope really will get this research. So other patients, Mm -hmm. clinicians, or advocacy groups, do they have relationships with those advocacy groups already where they can, when the findings come out, those findings can be distributed or disseminated in a broader way where more people actually have access to it. Mm-hmm. Applications are also evaluated on how creatively they can think about how to disseminate broadly. Yeah. Implementation is a little harder, I think. Or a lot harder. Um, yes, a lot harder. Again, we hope that the, the interventions that we're testing, as I said, are out there in the healthcare system. We hope that the evidence that's generated at the completion of the study is impactful and might generate or influence changes in mm-hmm. healthcare policies somehow. But how that link happens, it's that's a little trickier. Yeah, I, I interviewed these folks that were community health, a community health agency that had drop-in centers for youth at risk. So I asked them, what questions did they have that they thought that research could help them? And they, now I'm putting words in their mouth. So it's, just it's a combination of what they said and what I think. So just so I'm transparent, they pretty much said, we know what works. The challenge is doing it. The challenge isn't so much answering questions. It's like they know that the single most important thing is that people feel safe, that they belong, and that whatever they're doing with their peers. And they don't need research to tell them that those are the things that are important. But that doesn't make it any easier to do, that there are forces in play that that make things really hard to implement. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really like about PCORI and that drew me to PCORI was being on the forefront front of including people with lived experience at every step of the way of the research process. And it's risky, it's scary, and when it works, it's gold. So it seems like that if the populations we care about in this are 
emerging adults, children, incarcerated people, people without permanent housing, like all or people with cognitive challenges, that these are all like other challenges to including people every step of the way. And you need to be bold and take chances when you do that. So how have those, how has that impacted your work in terms of working with people who are applying or are successful in their application for research to include those I'm a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege, and I get invited to all sorts of tables, but I'm not really, I'll, that's all I know. I'm not really representative of that much, just that slice. Yeah, so how do you guys, how do you, yeah, how do you help that evolve? Yeah. That is a great question in terms of how to be how do we be inclusive within our stakeholder advisory panel. So not even just inclusive of the different stakeholder groups, but within patients, perhaps. How do we make the patient representation on any stakeholder advisory board representative of the sample who we're hoping to address this research for? That's hard. It's a hard question. And I think I was even thinking about this in terms of our specific topic with youth, right? Mm -hmm. I, can, I think it's much easier to try to engage adolescents. But if it's a study on younger kids, that is trickier. Um, it's easier all, to go with parents. Yes. Um, yeah. About, which is good because they're important stakeholders. But it's not. Yeah, it's not the actually, and this is like really early on, but so far, when I like talk with people with lived experience so far, so I don't say that any of what I'm saying is generalizable, but there's more hopefulness in people who are living it and working with people directly who are living it than there is with the stakeholders who are insurers or provider organizations mm -hmm. or or hospital systems. So in a way, it would seem that having those stakeholders around the table might, yeah, might what open up more possibilities i don't know this is such a broad area it is challenging i i know that there's emerging science of engagement efforts yeah. even within pakori and we're like what you're saying we know this works but right. how do we provide the evidence to show what are the mechanisms that make it work right and so yes. then it's replicable in other yes. For others, right? What are the ingredients that make stakeholder engagement work? 
And I think there still needs, we're still maybe in early days around that, mm-hmm. but I am hopeful that we can start to identify some of the pieces around how to engage more vulnerable populations, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, in the research that's being conducted for them, um, mm-hmm. so we can really hear their voice. Funders award a researcher's project for a limited time, a year, two, or five. The award covers direct and indirect cost, so research expenses, cost of the infrastructure and institution. Implementation often takes more than the two to five years, tension. Researchers don't usually have dissemination and implementation skills. They're researchers. It's like expecting teachers to raise our kids. They're teachers, not parents. There's a strong contingent of people who would like to be part of research. And they, and then they hear about PCORI, the few who have heard about PCORI, then they think, oh, we should get involved in this. And then it's, it's just so daunting, the idea of applying. And what I do is I encourage people to partner with researchers and establish long-term relationships. And then on the other hand, it's when I know research groups, I try to hook them up with community people that I know so that they can begin to develop or continue to develop or expand those relationships. So how does, like now you're thinking about this young adult mental illness, whether it's a suicidality prevention or reduction. How do does PCORI approach that business of partnership, like long-term partnerships with community organizations? Are you familiar with our engagement, our different engagement awards? There, there are a couple of different levels. We have Eugene Washington PCORI Engagement Award Program. And there was a pipeline to proposals. There, yeah, that we're that working was, on that. <laughs> that was a few years ago. That was I thought that was really exciting. It was a staged thing, wasn't it? You could start just to organizations to get ready to partner. Then mm-hmm. there were grants that were building a partnership and then mm-hmm. sustaining a partnership. And I mm-hmm. like that it was this graduated, iterative, maturing together and supporting that effort. Is that still around? So that specific pipeline is not, but okay. we're, I think, working, yeah, I guess to be seen exactly. But we do have, in terms of our current engagement awards, there are awards for stakeholder convening support. So that might be an mm-hmm. advocacy group applying for this award to get funding to gather all of the relevant stakeholders Mm -hmm. so that they can, I guess, create an effort where they're maybe really thinking about what are the key evidence gaps towards whatever healthcare issue concern that they focus on. So that's a starting Mm -hmm. point to help generate some of those, um, I guess, identifying those key evidence gaps that will hopefully 
lead to research proposals that aim to address them. Then there are also capacity building awards. These are projects that support organizations with strong ties to patients, caregivers, clinicians, and other stakeholders who have a connection to a research focus area. And this award is meant to be a bridge to better equip the stakeholders to engage as partners in research. So that might be that intermediate. Yeah, yeah. So the last thing that maybe, or the second to the last. Okay. <laughs> okay. Is, um, every once in a while, like I will talk to a, a congressperson's office. I can't say that I've ever talked to a congressperson, but the people in their office and related to PCORI. And one of the things that they say is that they need research to inform their policy making. So you were saying before, which I've already forgotten, except for the suicidality thread, is so what do you think are in this young adult and mental health portfolio? What is there that will help policymakers? Sure. So one area I think that could help for addressing youth mental health, I think we can all agree that there's been a shortage of mental health services and providers. One area or one means to address this concern to some extent is telehealth the expansion of telehealth, which could increase access. And as you might know, during COVID, some of the restrictions around telehealth were loosened to to provide this need that suddenly Mm -hmm. emerged. But we're still trying to, I think, synthesize the evidence to really show that telehealth is just as good as in-person care. Okay. And so I think that's one area where we could generate more synthesis around or synthesize that research to demonstrate the efficacy or effectiveness of telehealth. And I think that's an area that could have policy implications, right, in terms of what kind of coverage there continues to be, Mm -hmm. insurance coverage for telehealth once the, what is it called? They call it the public health emergency phase, which is, it's scheduled to, currently in January of this year. And so that will have implications on what kind of telehealth services continue to be covered, I guess, federally, which of course then has trickle-down effects to all the private insurers. Wow. Thank you. This has been lovely. Yeah, thank you. It's really, it's such a, an honor to get also to speak with a board member because of Corey staff directly, we don't really have a lot of yeah. interaction and not in this kind of venue by any means. It's really been a pleasure getting to spend some time with you. Thank you. As I began producing this episode with Dr. Chu, I worried readers, listeners, and watchers might find this topic dry and remote. I found value in including the research funder's perspective to complete a picture of emerging adults with mental illness. 
Dr. Chu and my conversation led me to highlight the dynamic tensions in research. Science has complexities, as does life. We identified the tensions between parental engagement and privacy, CER and innovation, duration of studies and implementation, time, costs, and expertise, community partnership building skills and research, and local implementation and generalization to other communities. I also found the concept of implementation more challenging and complex now than when Dr. Chu and I spoke. I should have known better. I agitate for implementation on my board seat, yet I well know that implementation means change of habits, culture, and incentives. For professionals, clinics, and organizations, and health systems, that means changing workflow and power dynamics, and for the public, changing life flow and sometimes community. So daunting. Can you think of anything more? I need to reflect some more. Thank you, Dr. Chu. I have one more episode recorded for the series with Sherry Wang, a health economist. I'm hoping to add an episode about cultural variation and then wrap up with a summary episode. That will be 16 episodes in the series. Yikes. I host, write, record, edit, engineer, and produce Health Hats the Podcast with production assistance from Kayla Nelson from website and social media consultation and managing dissemination, plus Leon Van Leeuwen for transcript editing. Joey Van Leeuwen supplies musical support, especially for the podcast intro and outro. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I'm grateful to you who have the most critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, health-hats.com, and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at dvanlu, D-V-A-N-L-E-E-U. Link in the show notes. If you like it, share it. See you around the block.